this morning, um, as sometimes happens, our lectionary reading does not go far enough. It starts too late and ends too early. And far be it from me to question. Um, so instead, I'm just going to go ahead and preach. Um, we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus is in Jerusalem and is approaching the end. He's cleansed the temple. He's argued with Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, and elders. And then so that none of the religious authorities would feel left out, Jesus gathers some folks around him and says loudly enough for all to hear, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Then, as if on cue, Jesus sees a widow, a poor widow, making her offering. Surrounded by the fat and wealthy with their big bellies and large donations, the widow drops her two small coins into the treasury. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Now, we usually hear these words as words of praise for the poor widow and her faithful generosity, and maybe we should, but coming hot on the heels of his condemnation of the scribes for devouring widows' houses, I have to wonder if Jesus is saying something else here, something else that we ought to consider. Maybe what Jesus is saying is, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and Places of honor at banquets, they devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance say long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And case in point, do you see that poor widow putting all she has in the treasury? And for what? To keep the priests and scribes well-dressed and well-fed? What better indication of their hypocrisy than this, that they insist that even this poor widow fork over her last pennies, everything she has, increasing her poverty, for the sake of their piety. Maybe the story of the widow is not so benign as we think. Maybe it's just a continuation of what came before, a continuation of Jesus' walking diagnosis of everything that's wrong in Jerusalem, all that's rotten in Denmark, all that's fallen in the world. Rather than being a place where poor widows can come and find solace and healing, the temple has become just one more weight around their necks. The widow may be poor, but the temple is making her poorer. But look, some disciples said, trying to get Jesus out of this gloomy mood, um, trying to get Jesus to change the subject, trying to get Jesus to look on the bright side of life. A Galilean in the big city, someone from the country, a yokel, awestruck by the beauty and grandeur of the temple that was King Herod's legacy. Magnificent and overwhelming and adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, the center of Jewish life and worship. Come on, Jesus, even you have to admit, it's pretty amazing. As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Okay, then, that went well. Apparently, the anger Jesus felt watching that poor widow's sacrifice uh, is not so easily put away. 
So then, in what I imagine is a mixture of dread and wonder, they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? What will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus lets them have it. Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. Just like in the old days, there are false prophets, con artists, right, who make a living by scaring people, telling them that the world is coming to an end, telling them they are, they are God's chosen emissary, spreading the message of fear and destruction. Well, don't listen to them, Jesus says. Listen to me. And then proceeds to tell them that, well, bad times are coming with the end to follow sometime after. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and signs from heaven. Wars, insurrections, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, plagues, dreadful portents, great signs from heaven, Hmm, sounds kind of familiar. Sounds sort of like yesterday's news, or today's news, or tomorrow's news. Sounds like human history. Sounds like bad times. It sounds like our world. Now, it's interesting that some folks take these words and those that follow and use them to concoct their own theories about the end times, reading the tea leaves, looking to the stars, drawing up charts and timelines, and even on occasion making bold predictions and gathering their small flocks around them to await the apocalypse. I grew up in that tradition, a tradition which acted as though the whole of human history was just waiting for us to come along uh, so it could lay down its weary head, so it could finally let go and let God. And I get the attraction, I really do. Um, because as I said many times before, and as someone said before me, it's no easy thing to stand on tiptoes for 2,000 years. Uh, it's no easy thing waiting for the promise to unfold. And let's face it, wars and insurrections and bad weather, I mean, if that marks the end times, then darling, we are there. And it does mark the end. Problem is, such catastrophes, human-made and natural, have been our lot pretty much since Adam and Eve were excommunicated from the garden. Which doesn't mean that we don't live in the end times, it just means that those end times comprise most of human history which doesn't mean that Jesus won't one day come and bring about the fullness of God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. It just means that the only one who knows when that will happen is not us. It's God, and anyone who tells you different, Jesus says, is wrong and ought to be ignored. Human history is a story of one catastrophe after another, and despite the best hopes and dreams of our enlightened and modern ancestors, uh, things are not getting any better. Progress is anything, but we're learning the hard way um, that much of our progress is, is an unsustainable lie, a lie that's revealed in the myriad side effects of that so-called human progress, a lie that tells us that we can solve every problem and we can make everything, including ourselves, faster, bigger, smarter, and ultimately win the battle over death. And instead we have global warming, perpetual warfare, Millions of poor widows carrying their last pennies to a church that would miss their offerings more quickly than it would miss them. What Jesus describes is the way that we have made the world, 
and the very reason for its need for redemption. What Jesus describes is the groaning of the earth as it waits to be relieved of the burden of a sinful humanity. But, Jesus said, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. I can get pretty terrified, sisters and brothers. I don't know about you, but when I look around and when I look back and when I imagine the future, I can get pretty terrified. But Jesus tells me not to be terrified, which suggests that he knows something that I don't know. Or maybe he knows something that I say I know, but really don't know. Or maybe he knows something I say I know and think I know, but don't really believe I know. At least not enough to place my trust in it anyways. And so once again, we come back to that perennial question. uh, Do we believe what we say about Jesus or not? But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You'll be hated by all. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Now, by the time Luke wrote his gospel, Jerusalem had already been destroyed. Uh, somewhere along in the, in the late uh, 60s AD, the Jews had rebelled. Um, they rebelled over taxes. They rebelled... Uh, over a variety of other things, and and eventually stopped saying prayers for the emperor. And Rome reacted, and after a two-year-long siege of the city, they burned it to the ground. They tore the temple down, leaving no stone unturned. And they burned what would burn, and they looted what was valuable, and they slaughtered many and scattered the rest. And contributing to the the, um, Destruction was factional fighting among the inhabitants of the city. Rather than standing together, the various factions actually aided the conquest by killing each other off. Some eventually fled to the old fortress of Masada and were again put under siege where, according to legend, many of the last holdouts committed suicide in order to escape death at the hands of the Romans. And all of this this, this huge disaster would have been fresh in the minds of Luke's audience. They would have recognized these things that Jesus was describing. They may even have seen them happen. And our Anabaptist ancestors, um, they would have recognized such times too, as would many of our Ethiopian sisters and brothers, as would Christians in some other parts of our 21st century world, times when followers of Jesus were so disruptive to the status quo, so threatening to the powers that be, so incorruptible, to the temptations of this world that they were rounded up and led before kangaroo courts and persecuted and executed and all for the sake of being, all because they were faithful to Jesus and were refusing to bow down before any other Lord, including Lord Caesar. And so whether these words from Jesus are a foretelling of the future or a description of an event just past or both, the basic message is it's going to be mighty hard to be a faithful Christian in the days ahead. Bad things are going to happen. The followers of Jesus. 
because the truth that they proclaim, the life that they lead, the worship that they offer is all of it a repudiation of the powers of this world. The powers of this world, whether Rome or Babylon or the United States, have a truth that has to be told and believed by all citizens. They have a way of life that is sacred and so must be adhered to. They have a mythology of their own, one in which God belongs to them and is revealed through them, and so they expect a certain kind of worship from us, their citizens. And on those rare occasions when people resist that truth and resist that way of being and resist that worship, well, then all hell breaks loose, and the rebellious ones suffer. Their weaker sisters and brothers turn against them, and it gets mighty hard to be faithful to Jesus when hell itself is brought down on the heads of those whose allegiance belongs only to him and to his truth and to his way of being and to the worship of the God whom Jesus came to reveal. Now, we contemporary North American Mennonites have the luxury of being entirely ignorant of such dire prospects. The only persecution we may suffer is a kind of embarrassment, the kind that causes us to take the word Mennonite from our signboards or... Um, downplay those old and odd Anabaptist distinctives or in some other way trim the edges of our practice so no embarrassing slip show and cause us to stand apart from the crowd. In most other ways, we fit in all too well, indistinguishable all too often from those Christians who see no contradiction between serving God and serving the empire, beneficiaries of global capitalism, of a military economy, of a political arrangement that permits us to comfortably carry our offerings to the temple while leaving the widows to fend for themselves. Our experience is pretty much the opposite of the prophetic warnings of our Lord. We're not huddled with the sheep waiting to be slaughtered. We're hiding among the wolves and hoping our costumes hold up until the scary times are past. We're entirely ignorant, I think, of the kind of terror described by Jesus, but our sisters and brothers in Colombia are not. Our sisters and brothers in Iraq are not. Our sisters and brothers in Congo are not. Our sisters and brothers in Zimbabwe are not. Our sisters and brothers in Vietnam are not. All over the world, sisters and brothers in Christ, many of whom are Mennonites, know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And they shame us with their faithfulness. And Lord willing, they also remind us of what happens when Christians seek Christ's kingdom first, when Christians place themselves entirely in the hands of God, when Christians declare openly that Jesus Christ is their only Lord and then live as if that were true. It's not in numbers alone that our sisters and brothers in the global south are surpassing us. And Jesus speaks a word to his disciples and to our sisters and brothers around the world and to us. Jesus says, when the terror comes, don't be terrified. Jesus says, when the persecution comes, testify. Jesus says, when you are hated by everyone, not a hair of your head will perish. Jesus says, when all else is lost, your endurance will gain your souls. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are days of vengeance, as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs, and this is, this is intense. 
um, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Let's go back to that. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says when everything you know is being destroyed, when evil seems to prevail, when the armies of the empire at the gates of your city, when the glaciers are melting and earthquakes are multiplying and it seems like there's a new hurricane every day when everyone you know is heading for the hills in terror and those with children are wondering if it would have been better not bringing them into the world when everything and everyone around us is caught up in chaos and violence and fear and death, when the absolute worst is happening, the Son of Man will come in the clouds. So, stand up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. Now again, we may feel the slightest temptation to start predicting just how bad things need to be for Jesus to come and rescue us and redeem us. So let's quickly remember again Jesus' warning against that kind of manufactured prophecy. And instead, consider these words of comfort that give us a place to stand in the middle of all this trouble. Don't be terrified. Not a hair on your heads will perish. Endurance will gain your souls. Christ comes in the clouds. Your redemption draws near. Or, reversing the order, your redemption draws near. Christ comes in the clouds. Endurance will gain your souls. Not a hair on your heads will perish, so don't be terrified. Jerusalem's going to fall. The empire is going to destroy everything and everyone that resists its call for total allegiance. The people of God will be scattered, some running toward the enemy seeking peace, others running away. The earth and the sky will threaten to fall apart. And still, your redemption draws near, and Christ comes on the clouds. And endurance will gain your souls, and not a hair on your heads will perish, so don't be terrified. Don't be terrified, even when things are terrifying. Because despite what the empire tells you, and despite what history tells you, and despite what your conscience tells you, and despite what your common sense tells you, and despite what the false prophets tell you, and despite what your own fear tells you, Christ will come. The promises will be fulfilled. The reign of God will be here on earth as it is in heaven, and your lives are hidden in Christ already, and nothing can separate you from that. Nothing, not even the empire's very worst. Don't be terrified. Don't be terrified. Testify. Bear witness. Don't bother preparing what to say, because Christ himself is going to give you the word when you need it. Behave in ways that reveal your hope. Act as if everything you say you believe is true. That death has been defeated. That Christ is ruler over the principalities and powers of this earth. That Christ gave himself so that the whole world through him might be saved. That nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. That the end of evil is in sight. That death is nothing to be afraid of. That Jesus Christ is the only Lord 
and all other so-called lords will one day bow down and worship Christ. All of those things we say every time we gather for worship. They are to be revealed as true in the face of whatever comes, even in the most dire circumstances. And again, we see this kind of testimony in our sisters and brothers in Colombia, in Zimbabwe, wherever the kind of chaos and violence that Jesus describes is being played out. And if we're paying attention at all, and we have to pay attention, we are in awe of such witness, a witness worthy of its own martyr's mirror, a witness which reveals both the truth of Jesus' words and the extent of our own co-optation. Here in Rome, in Babylon, in the U.S., we can still pretend that the reason that we aren't called upon to suffer for our faith is because our particular empire stands for religious freedom or is somehow exceptionally blessed by God or is that famous city on the hill, beacon of hope for the world. But the witness of our sisters and brothers who are suffering, in part at least because of the policies and practices of this empire, well, that witness tells us just how compromised we have become, how confused we are, how sleepy, how cozy, how comfortable how compromised. Their witness, I think, calls our own into question. And so, perhaps, the chaos and conflict that we need to face is an internal chaos, an internal conflict. Maybe we need to get out of our comfortable seats and off of our cozy sofas and step out of that and, and reckon with what, well, reckon with the call of Christ on our lives and engage in the struggle to determine how that call places us in relationship to the empires of this world, not for the sake of inviting persecution, for the sake of being faithful, struggling with our consciences in order to, to learn just how tangled up we are in all of this and how tough it would be to cut some of the cords that bind us and how scary it might be to risk everything, our wealth, our security, our sense of well-being, our livelihoods, our popularity, our, our relationships, how scary it might be to put everything at risk, to put everything at risk for the sake of following Jesus, to consider finally stepping out of line, breaking the silence, challenging the status quo, pulling on the emperor's cape, finding our way to greater faithfulness, to begin to live individually and as a community of faith as if everything we say we believe is true to begin living in solidarity with those the empire casts aside, to join them in faithful witness and learn from them what it is to endure, to endure, to endure, and so gain our souls. And to do so trusting that even in the midst of disruption and chaos and persecution and violence and the breaking of relationships and the loss of material possessions, Christ is coming in the clouds. Our redemption draws near, trusting that no matter what comes, there Christ will be, and all we have to do is lift up our heads and see him there. And so we need not be terrified, because God holds us even now in God's own hand. And as we endure, as we hold fast, as we bear witness, as we take risk, we're in a very real way becoming what we were always meant to be, people who put their trust in God, people who give their allegiance only to Jesus, people who pray that the kingdom of God will come on earth as it is 
in heaven. It's a sort of homecoming. This stripping off of the cords which bind us to this world. The entanglements of empire. For the sake of being faithful. Coming to our true selves at last. It's a sort of homecoming. And Jesus himself there to welcome us. And Jesus himself there to welcome us. Amen.